title of the sermon today is called The Call of the King. And you heard there in the text, um, this parable that we have centers around an invitation. And I had a plan about what invitation I was going to share with you as sort of a, uh, an illustration this morning, but now I'm going to change it because there was an invitation about seven years ago that was particularly special to me. And um, that was an invitation to come to a small discipleship group with four other guys, me, Chuck Mayo, and John Meadows. Those two guys are here this morning. They surprised me about being here. So um, it was out a, re- a result of that invitation. Yeah, sorry, kids. I've, they told me to dismiss, and I completely forgot. So. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, Chuck had invited me to that, that discipleship group, and we would meet at 5 a.m., something crazy like that, at, at, at Denny's um, over here on Ashley Phosphate Road. And it was through that discipleship group that God really just began to work on me. And I mean, in large why I'm standing here today even, even doing this. So um, anyway, just, just want to share that with you. But if, if you think about those kinds of invitations, right, that we get in our lives, we don't really know when they're coming. And, and just such an invitation goes out today as we look at the text. If you recall kind of the timeline of where we are, we're, we're at Grace, we're working our way verse by verse through the book of Matthew. And so we, we, we find ourselves in this period of time, it's the Holy Week, um, right? We, we're working our way to Friday, which is the day that Jesus would be crucified. But right now, we're on Wednesday. And, and, and recently, if you recall, Jesus has gone into the temple and cleansed the temple is what we call it. He, he, he went into the temple and he saw the money, the money changers and, and those people who were there who were, um, had really perverted what Israel was supposed to be to the nations. One of the things that Darren has described is you have the nation of Israel is centered in this portion of the earth that's particularly unique, right? There's, there's this intersection of three continents that come together. It's situated right there in the strategic point is God's chosen people, the nation of Israel. And God's plan in the Old Testament was that people would come through this region and, and they would see the difference in the way the children of Israel ate, how they spoke, how they worshiped the Lord. They would see the temple and how everything fit together and they would be pointed and drawn to the real, true, living God. But what they had done was not what was designed to be done. They had completely perverted the system. Not only that, they had set up this system where they were using it to their own advantage, where as people came into the temple, they were extorted for their money and and really not allowed to worship. So it's no wonder when Jesus goes into the temple, he's angry and he flips over the tables because they had done such a horrible, horrible thing. And, And so when we get to these parables, if you remember back in chapter 21... The Pharisees have had time to lick their wounds from that event, and they probably conspired in the back of the room to say, well, what are we going to do now? And they decide that the thing to do is to go and confront Jesus once again. And and in chapter 21, they came up with a question that they were going to ask. So they come to Jesus in chapter 21, and they say, by what authority do you do these things? What gives you the right to tell us what to do? Right? We're, We're the elite. We're the... We're the ruling Pharisees, and here you are. You come into our temple. You tell us what to do. You question our teaching, and you question our traditions. What, by what authority do you make those claims? Now, it's interesting that Jesus answers those claims 
with three parables. Darren's already taught two of those parables, so we're in the third parable now. All three of these parables have a common theme of judgment. And you're going to see that as we look in detail at this morning. Jesus is essentially giving them a story to answer their question in judgment to who they are and what they've done. These parables, as we've kind of studied the book of Matthew, if you remember back at the beginning of Matthew, Jesus taught primarily in terms of exhortation, right? The Sermon on the Mount. Jesus called all to him. The truth was plainly given for all to hear. But as the Pharisees around chapter 13, as as the rejection of Jesus' teaching becomes more and more evident, Jesus' teaching style gradually shifts from exhortation to parables to the point where he teaches in public now is almost exclusively in parables. There's a good reason for this. If you look in Mark chapter 4, verse 10 and 12, I don't know if that will be on the screen, but I'll read it. Uh, he, Jesus is meeting with his disciples, and they say, Why do you teach in parables? And Jesus answers them, there's really, it's really a two-sided answer, right? On the one hand, he teaches in parables because it's a wonderful teaching style, right? He, he's able to convey this heavenly truth in a relatable way, in a way that the, the everyday person who just takes the experience of life is able to consume that. And not only that, they're able to remember it because they're, they're catchy stories, even us as we read them. We remember how Jesus taught in parables. But there was a second reason that he taught in parables, and which is what I'm getting at. Why he's answering the question this way in a parable is because it was a judgment. You had to be humble to hear the lesson of a parable. You, could, you couldn't be prideful and boastful and set in your ways and understand the reality of what Jesus was teaching in these simple stories. So in Mark chapter 4, verse 10... When the disciples say, Jesus, why do you teach in parables? Jesus answers the question this way. He says, and he said to them, to you it has been given the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. So that, this is the reason, they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. You see, Jesus executes this answer in a parable because it's a judgment on them. It's a judgment for their own rejection of his message. Fascinating. And it makes perfect sense why Jesus answers this question of authority with three parables. Now, this uh, first verse, if you look at the text today, it says, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, now, Jesus, we don't have to wonder what the parable is about. He tells us right up front, this parable is about the kingdom of heaven. And I want you to understand it's not, it's not some future state of the kingdom. Jesus, although it includes that, Jesus doesn't necessarily have the final state with God's kingdom finalized, gathered around the throne in mind. What Jesus has in mind as he tells this parable is the here and now building of the kingdom. As we're saved, as we're brought into the family of God, we're ushered in to this kingdom right here on earth. So in a way, God's kingdom is being built around us as we come to know Christ. So when Jesus says, you know, when people come into the family of God, when people become believers, the thing that that you can compare that to is interesting. It's like a king who gave a wedding feast. Probably not the analogy that we would use. And so, and so, if you think about what was a wedding feast to these first century Jews, 
a wedding feast was a big deal. Now, we know wedding feasts are also a big deal here for us, right? If you've ever been invited to a wedding, especially here in Charleston, I can't tell you the number of times I've been on a plane coming back from somewhere, and it seems like half the plane is a wedding party that's coming to Charleston to get married. Weddings here are a big deal. But we really can't hold a candle to what they did in ancient Israel. The wedding ceremony would sometimes last upwards of a week in time. So can you imagine being invited to a wedding, and it was going to be a week-long festivity of feast after feast, party after party. This was a big deal. And this wasn't just your everyday wedding. Jesus explicitly says this is a king, this is a royal wedding. So when, when those are gathered around Jesus listening to him tell this parable, what Jesus wants them to have in mind is this is the biggest deal you can possibly think of. There's a king, and he has a son who's going to be honored, and he's throwing a wedding celebration that everyone should come to. And so everybody in the audience is, is following this story, and they understand, wow, this is, this is a big, big event. And so this invitation, as we go through the parables, there's going to be three separate invitations that we're given, and we're going to look at each one of those in detail. The first invitation uh, says, he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. <gasps> Can you hear it? They would not come. How, how, do, they, how do they not come? This is, this is a gigantic celebration by the king. How dare they not come to the servants? So it's very interesting, and I missed this the first few times I read this verse. There's something, there's a detail in this verse that helps unlock the meaning of what this entire parable is about. He, he says, he sent his servants to call whom? Who did the servants call? Those who were invited. They're, they're invited. That's, that, it's, it's amazing. Who? Has already, it's like they had to save the day. None other than the children of Israel, right? This is, this is the nation of Israel. They're, they're being called. God has revealed to them all through the Old Testament that they were going to be called to a wedding feast with the Messiah. So they've, they've already been warned. And that's how we know, that's how we know who this who these, who, these, uh, who these wedding guests are. So in the parable so far, let's define who we have. We have, obviously, the king, and the king represents God the Father. We have the son, who obviously represents Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And then thirdly, now we have these guests, and we've identified these guests as the nation of Israel. They've been invited to a feast. They've been invited to this wedding ceremony, but they refuse to come. Uh, one commentator I read this week was talking about this verse, and he said, really, you have the entirety of the Old Testament wrapped up in a single verse right here. It, it, as you work your way through the Old Testament, you see time and time again, God extends grace to his chosen people, the nation of Israel. Time and time again, they turn their back on God. And so when we get to this verse, we clearly see that pattern is continued. The same thing happens again. How dare they refuse this invitation to this glorious event? And so we get to invitation number two. 
Again, he said, again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, right? These are the ones who were invited already. See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. So this king is very gracious, right? He's He's very benevolent. This is, a, this is a good king with a lot of patience because he's really just been disrespected to the highest degree by having those that were invited just flat out not show up. And what does the king do but issue for them another chance? Again, all through the Old Testament, we see God graciously pleading and, work and, 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 and just forgiving and giving opportunity after opportunity. The other thing we notice from this verse is that the king wants them to know that everything is prepared. Everything's done. You don't have to do anything. This is not like bring a casserole, right? You don't even have to do that. This is just flat out. Just all you have to do is show up. Just respond to the invitation. That's the only thing that's being asked. I I was kind of reminded, I was thinking through that, and it's like, when Jesus was, was on the cross, right, and when he's hanging up there in his last words, he cries out, it is finished. Right? It's done. There's nothing else we have to do. And that's the same, that's the same invitation that we have here. We don't, we, God's not waiting on us to do anything on his behalf. All we have to do is show up. And so this king who's patient, this king who's going to extend now another invitation to these, uh, another invitation of servants. In the second invitation, you know, if, if that first invitation was all of the Old Testament, right, then, then who are these, the second wave of, 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 of servants that go out to invite? I think that's this transition period that we're in here in the New Testament, right, all the way from the book of Matthew to the book of Acts, we had God again send a fresh batch of servants, right? He had John the Baptist, and John, John the Baptist said what? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The time has come. The kingdom is here. So you had John the Baptist come. You had, you had Jesus, the Messiah himself, in flesh, declaring that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So, so God not only sent that past group, he's also sent a group in their current day. You had the apostles, who, 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 who spent all of their time ministering not only to the children of Israel, but also to the Gentiles and were rejected. And what happened to this group of people? Let's look at the next verse. It says, invitation number, this is invitation number two. It says, again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. They simply refused to come. And when you watch the response to, um, to how, the, how, the, how, how these groups respond in, in verse 5 and 6, it says, but they paid no attention. And they went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. And nobody saw that coming. Here you have this generous king who's given them yet another chance to respond. He sent out and he said, I've got everything ready. All you got to do is come. Well, group number one, what you notice about them is they simply don't care, right? These are the, the, these are the group that just respond in indifference. And, and we run into that too 
as we share the gospel. We're going we're gonna to share the gospel with people who simply just don't have time. They, they don't really have a good reason um, for, for, for why they don't come. It's, you know, hey, I got work to do at the farm. I got some stuff to take care of down at the office, and I really don't have time for the things of God. So, so, so we see that not only, not only was, it, was it there in this invitation, but we see it in our own invitation. As we talk to the world, maybe even more so, they, the world seems to have less and less time to hear about the goodness and the greatness of the thing is that we have to offer. The second group is even more egregious than the first because they seize the servants, these messengers that the king sends out to invite them. They seize them, treat them shamefully, and murder them. Wow. You didn't see that coming. You can, you can almost put yourself in the audience as Jesus is telling the stories. like, it was bad enough that they just didn't come, but now they've killed the king's servants? It's, it's unspeakable. <clears throat> These, um, w- when you think about who, who it was, right? John the Baptist, who ended up being beheaded, right? You had Jesus, who only two days after this is going to wind up on a cross. And then you have the apostles, who were martyred. <clears throat> it's exactly as it was going to unfold. What Jesus tells them is going to happen. So, okay, so now this has happened. What happens with the king? It says there in the next verse, the king was angry. Yeah, you can imagine this king is angry. Um, And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. The king's had enough. This, the king was patient. The king was good. The king was kind, but the king's patience has a limit. And he's reached the end of his rope. He's now angry, and he has had enough. While this immediately applies to the children of Israel, I think it also applies to us, right? Because there's many times where God executes patience on us. There's many times where God tells us what to do, and we don't listen. Or maybe God calls us into him, and you say, you know what, God, I think I'm just going to go my own way. I think I'm going to go do my own thing. And God is patient, just like he dealt with those um, Jews. He, he deals with us in the same way, and he offers us opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. But one day, the day will come when God's patience runs out, and that's exactly what happens here with this king. Jesus also issues a prophecy in this verse. You see it there. Um, he and they say, when, well, when did that happen? In A.D. 70, this prophecy would be, be fulfilled. So just a few, few years later, this actually took place um, as Rome moved into the city of Jerusalem. The entire city was basically destroyed. The temple was destroyed. The, in the temple being destroyed, the sacrificial system that the Jews would, would need to carry out their religion effectively would be impossible. 1.1 million Jewish people, men, women, and children, died as that city was destroyed. The king was angry. If there's one place you don't want to be, it's facing the angry king when you're wrong. Then he said to his city, but those invited were not worthy. What makes them not worthy? They refused. 
They refused to come. Out of the own hardness of their hearts, they refused to come. Therefore, they are not worthy. This king is very persistent in making sure that the son is honored no matter what. The son will be honored. That's first and foremost in this parable. As a matter of fact, you know, when we have a wedding today, the focus is all about the bride, right? I mean, really, us guys are there, but it's almost like from a distance. We're just sort of watching. It's all about the bride. She picks out the decorations. She picks out the, the, the colors and the flowers, and, the, and all that gets decided by the bride. Not so in this story, right? This, this wedding is about one person and one person only, and it's the son. And I think there's a very important lesson there because a lot of times as we come into the kingdom, we try to make it all about me, right? It's all about what is what, 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 how, what, what am I getting out of this deal, right? Well, I get eternal life. You know, I get spiritual gifts. I get, I get a family of brothers and sisters who help me um, work through stuff, and, 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 and I lean on them, and they lean on me, and all those things are true, right? Those are all 100% true, but they're not the focus of this wedding. This wedding is about bringing glory to the Son, right? So when we're, when we're ushered into the kingdom, it's not about me. Yeah, I get good stuff, but it's all about ultimately so that we can bring glory and honor to the Son, which is exactly why we're here this morning. And everything we do, whether it's how we sing the song, whether it's how we read our Bible, whether it's how we preach, it's all designed for one purpose and one purpose only, to bring glory to the Son. And if we do that, mission accomplished. And so the king sends them out. He says, therefore, uh, go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. This is really moving into invitation number three now. No longer is this about that exclusive list of guests that that we were sending invitations to. Now all bets are off, and we're sending servants out into the world. Notice he says, go out into the main roads. Don't go to the back roads. I want you to go out where where the people are on this land bridge of travelers, right, where, where the intersections of the world, where the Gentiles would be moving through, go, back, go out and invite everyone, as many as you find, and tell them to come. Go ye therefore into all nations, right? We, we, hear, we hear the Great Commission. It's, it's, this, it's the same invitation that we all give today, whether it's here, whether it's abroad, no matter where we are, we invite you, hey, come. There's a giant celebration. There's a giant kingdom, a family, and we want you to come and be a part of it. And we, 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 we cast that message wherever we go. It's almost like the parable, parable of the soils, right, where the, where the sower's just going along and he's, he's sowing seed. He, he's, not, he's not placing seeds one by one in the ground. He just sows the seed wherever he goes. He sows the seed. And the idea is he's not really thinking about where the seed lands. Now, I'll take God will sort that out, right? In that parable, God is the one who prepares the soil, right? So as we, we just sow the seed, we don't worry about who shows up. That's what he tells them to do. Go out into the world and invite everyone we see to come. That's our job. <clears throat> now, the, um, the, the next verse there says, And those servants went out into the roads. And gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. 
So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Right, God, it, it worked. When, 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 when the world was given the message, when they were given the invitation, what, the king? The king's having a, 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 a wedding celebration? Of course I'll go, right? Right there on the spot, they drop what they're doing and, and they attend this so that now the wedding hall's full. And there's a, there's a room full of people all there specifically to honor the son. It's good that they, they, you notice they didn't discriminate in their invitation. They, they, they asked people that they thought were good. They asked people that they thought were bad. Everybody they saw got the invitation. Isn't it good that God calls bad people? I'm happy God calls bad people. People that, people that maybe we look at them and go, oh, I don't know if I need to share the gospel with that dude. He look, you know, he's got a face tattoo. He looks really rough. Maybe, maybe I'll pass over that guy. No. God says invite them all. And God is the one who's sovereign over, over who responds and how they respond. It's not our call. Invitation number three. <clears throat> Sorry, but the, the next verse there, the king says, but when the king came back to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. I think Jesus could have, he could have ended this parable like before this verse but he gives like this plot twist that just makes it so sweet. Like th- this, little, this part of the story really gives this, this thing some teeth. There's a man who shows up at the wedding, right? And if you, if you picture all these people, what were they doing when they got invited to the wedding? They were just traveling, right? They were going down the road. Maybe they were going into the office. Maybe they were making a, a journey to, a, to another land. Whatever they were doing, they were working their way around. And some guy walks up to him and says, hey, the king's having a, a festive wedding celebration and, and you're invited. And so these people just dropped what they were doing and they came to this wedding feast. And so the, th- the thing that's interesting is they weren't prepared to come. They hadn't really um, packed a bag. Uh, they didn't bring their tuxedo. They, they, they were, maybe they were dirty. Maybe they smelled. Maybe they had been traveling for days. We don't, we don't know. But for whatever reason, they, they, they were going to, they, were, they agreed to go to this wedding. And so the king doesn't want them to just show up that way because that would bring dishonor to the son. And so he prepares a wedding garment. We don't know how they got the wedding garment, whether they were, the servants had them and they handed them to the people, or maybe they passed them out as they arrived. Whatever it was, this was some sort of appropriate clothing that would be issued to each person. So, so that they would be dressed appropriately of this royal wedding. And so there's a lot of discussion among theologians about what this, um, what this wedding garment is supposed to represent. But most people agree, me included, that this, is, this, this clothing, this wedding garment is representative of righteousness. Being clothed in righteousness was the only way that it was appropriate to attend this wedding. I'll tell you why I think that. If you go to Isaiah 61, verse 10, this, there's this passage that almost exactly describes the current situation. It says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. 
So this covering was, was what made the, 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 the attendees clean. It was what, it's what covered their, their day-to-day just dirt, and it, it hid them, and, 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 and what was left was white and pure righteousness, rightness with God. And this concept of being right with God, it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. You may remember in the Garden of Eden when uh, the very first prophecy of Jesus, of, of the Messiah that would be sent, right? In, in that garden, you had Adam and Eve who had sinned. And as a result of their sin, they felt shame, they felt nakedness, and they needed to cover. You remember that? And what did they do? They go out and they find some fig leaves and they sew them together and they make for themselves a covering that is not sufficient. God shows up and he says, I'm going to make a covering that's appropriate. And in doing so, he foreshadows the one that would come someday, Jesus, the one who would come and ultimately give us the garment that we actually needed to be able to attend this wedding. And so God, in that story in the Garden of Eden, he kills an animal. He covers them with the skins of that animal, foreshadowing what would happen in his son, Jesus Christ. So the the king is, is gracious, he's kind, he goes up to this man who's inappropriately dressed, and he says, friend... How did you get in here without a wedding garment? And the man was speechless. You notice he doesn't say, I left my robe at home, or he doesn't say that, you know, the the line to get the robes was just so long that I, I, I was so excited to see the sun, and I bypassed the line, and I came straight in here to see the king because and the sun because I wanted to give him all the glory that was. He doesn't say that. He has no excuse for what he's done. He's, he's silent. And instead of being clothed in the righteousness of the king, he's clothed inappropriately in his own self-righteousness. He's made the determination that he's going to enter into this wedding feast on his own terms, essentially. Isaiah 64, 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. And this idea of of clothing continues, right? If we take all the goodness, all the best things that we have to offer, and we hang them on ourselves, we look utterly ridiculous to God. We would stand before God with polluted garments, which is exactly the way this man looks toward the king. And then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. See, God's patience has a limit. This man is no longer afforded the opportunity to go out and dress himself in appropriate garments. It's all too late. His hands are bound to prevent his struggle He's dragged outside and thrown into a place of torment. It is a scary thing to be in this position. As we close the parable, verse 14, Jesus adds a tagline. And it's one that I struggled with all week. Because Jesus says, many are called, but few are chosen. 
This story, this parable that he's told seems to be all about choices, right? We know that, that, that we're responsible for our own choices. We know that we have been invited to this wedding ceremony. And in, and in the parable, we saw some people choose to go. We saw some people choose not to go. They were held responsible for that decision. We saw some people who chose to wear the wedding garment and then some people who chose not to wear, wear the wedding garment. And they were held responsible for that decision. Jesus reminds us here that, yes, we are responsible for our choices, but he wants you to remember as he finishes up this story, many are called, but few are chosen. He reminds us that God is sovereignly involved in our salvation. And I think maybe he reminds us of that because there may be a tendency among us, those of us who have arrived at the wedding to look at our robes and say, oh, wow, I look pretty sharp. If I'm being honest, this robe really looks good on me, right? And I think, I think there's a temptation for us on our behalf to say, you know, I'm pretty smart that I figured all this stuff out. But Jesus reminds us here at the end that it's really not about us. If we find ourselves in this wedding hall, it's because of one reason and one reason only, and that's because God's grace has revealed the truth to us. Somewhere down the road, somebody was good enough and faithful enough to share with us the meaning of the gospel, and God was good enough and gracious enough to open our hearts and open our minds and afford us the opportunity to respond. So this morning, today, we, as, we, as, we, as we reach the end of the service, we're going to have an opportunity to respond. And I want all of us to, to kind of just be thinking along those lines. Uh, let, let me just pray for us, and then, and then we'll close. Heavenly Father, uh, God, you are so good. You've been good to us for a long time, God. And we just thank you so much for, for the gift you've given us through your Son, that we, um, God, you, you, you've not only given us your son, but you've given us your word. You've given us everything we need to know you and to live a life that honors you. And the, the only issue with that plan was, was, was us and the fact that we find ourselves in sometimes disobedience. Uh, God, that we just, we just pray this morning that we would honor you in all that we do, God, as we, as we think about the weight of this invitation. Uh, God, we pray for anyone here who may have never responded, God, that you've exercised patience over and over again. God, that you would be the one who just opens their hearts and opens their minds so that they would open arms, run to this wedding feast, and see the goodness of the wedding feast and all that it has to offer. Uh, God, we pray for our evangelism. As we, as we go out into the world, as we encounter those people who are just passing by, that you would, uh, God, just go before us before we even get there and you would prepare the soil, prepare the hearts of, of all of those people. Um, God, because if we, if, we, if we take on that endeavor in our, in our own wisdom and our own uh, means, we no doubt would come up short. God, I just pray as we close this morning that you would give us just this opportunity of reflection. Uh, God, as we, as we truly evaluate ourselves, 
and go out into the, to the, to the world next week, God, that you would uh, go there with us too. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.